This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a pair of issues from my comic book collection, which I will select based on the genre assigned to the month of this podcast release. Any books for my comic book collection are eligible as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for them. Were the issues worth 25 cents? Were they bargains at 25 cents? Or were they still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 186th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast in celebration of hashtag Fantasy Comics Month, we are looking at Camelot 3000, issues 1 and 2, from DC Comics, cover dated December 1982 and January 1983, respectively. But first, a little feedback. And starting up is what I missed last time. Back on episode 184, the episode where Thongor was covered, Sir, Sir Martin of Grey had a few things to say about that episode and my team up with Billy D. Martin, of course, has been helping Billy wrap up his all-star squadron coverage over on A World of Fire. Hi, sir. Top show as ever. It was great to hear Billy chatting Thongor. Mind, given what the ladies wear or don't wear in these stories, I must speak up for chaps in banana hammocks. Let's have equal opportunity perving and put the thong back in Thongor. This sounds like a decent yarn of its type. A wordy writer like Gardner Fox helps ensure you get your money's worth in terms of time spent. Looking at the issue online, though, this looks like rushed Val Merrick art. But that's 70s Marvel for you. I'm looking forward to Wild West Month. Yeehaw, Kid Mart. <laughs> Thank you, kid. You know, I wish I could go back in time. Because then I could rename that episode, Putting the Thong Back in Thongor. Hashtag, Missed Opportunities. And then last episode, with Shag and I talking some Jonah Hex, the aforementioned Billy D wrote in and made the obvious comment. Fun episode. Not sure about the guest, though. Chris Lydon wanted to know which one of us was the black hat and which one was the white hat? That's cute, Chris, but come on. We know who was who. Shag himself even popped into the conversation at that point, agreeing that it was pretty obvious. And the notorious JJG Jeremiah was surprised that that series, the new 52 All-Star Western, lasted as long as it did. 34 issues, as a matter of fact. And... We heard from Dragon Con's Michael Bailey, who had some things to say. Professor Allen, I have been lax in both listening and feedbacking, but I'm getting back on the horse, so it makes sense that I should write in about a Western comic. I like what you did there, Mike. Having Shag on the show to talk all-star Western was bold, considering I thought he was still wanted in three systems, so you were taking a serious chance there, but I assume you knew what you were doing. Wait a minute. Shag said he was pardoned? 
But I guess that's just what that Sidewinder would say, isn't it? It was a fun discussion that I enjoyed quite a bit. I got a good chuckle out of Shag saying that it was probably Palmiati and Didio's friendship that allowed such adult, in the sexy sense, material in this kid's book. That may be true, but this was actually tame compared to other things going on in the DCU. That's all for now. Take care, Professor. Regards, Dragon Con's Michael Bailey. Ooh, Mike, shots fired at Shag, which, given the content of that comic book, actually seems quite appropriate. Social media love for last episode came from Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army, the irredeemable Shag, of course, Ted from the Justice Trek podcast, Sir Luke Giaconetti, Tim Price, the Podcrasher, Shane Kelly, Keith G. Baker, Chris Willette, Sean from the Bat Pod, at Wacky Comics, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Karen from Between the Pages, James Williams from Karen, Ed from Teal Productions, Sir Manuel Carmona, Denise King, Mark Baker Wright, Dr. Pop Culture BGSU, Range of Gord, Paul Heeks, from Waiting for Doom, and maybe one day from Heroes Con. Mark Reznicek, W. Lomax, Monkey7771, Roger Preeb, D.A. Stanfield, The Lady Laurel, from the Hunters Podcast, Vic in Phoenix, Spy Vinyl, Greg Litchfield, voice actor, Eugene R. Hendricks, and our buddies Ruth and Darren, from the Rad Adventures Podcast Network. Thank you all for that support, friends. And when we come back after this promo, we will jump right into our hashtag Fantasy Comics Month issues. He's the grand old man of Marvel. Stan Lee was involved in the creation of some of the world's favorite comics characters like Spider-Man, Iron Man, Thor, and the Hulk but he didn't create them on his own. Artists like Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko were also instrumental in the creation of these characters, but many fans of the Marvel movies don't even know their names. Did Stan take too much credit by design? Or was he just given the credit because he's more media friendly? Millions of words have been written about Lee, both to praise him and disparage him. What are the books about Lee that you should read? On Deconstructing Comics, we're going to screen the books about Lee so you don't have to. Join us, True Believer, as we read as many books about Stan Lee as we can stand, and compare them to each other. Find Deconstructing Comics in your favorite podcast app, Excelsior. And we're back. And in the few days that have passed since recording the first portion of this episode... I have had a terrible allergy attack, and I hope that my voice is currently not as annoying to you as it is to me. Camelot 3000 issues 1 and 2 each had cover prices of $1, meaning that I got these comics at a very easy-to-figure 75% markdown from that original price. We're going to look at each of these separately, but pretty much run the synopses together. 
The cover of issue one by Brian Bolland is really good. It shows Arthur all bearded and armored, striding towards us, sword held aloft. Behind him, looming, is the visage of Merlin. Across the top are the words, the time has come. And on one side of the cover, we see spaceships and aliens. Like I said, this is really good. Oh, and down on the bottom right-hand side is a scrawl in sort of gold or bronze-colored ink. Something in code, maybe. I think it says M, W, bar. Oh, that's right. My copy was signed by writer Mike W. Barr five or six years ago at the Akron Comic Con. Chapter one. Actually, it says, DC Comics presents a soul-stirring sequel to the greatest legend of all. Chapter one. The Past and Future King was written by co-creator Mike W. Barr with art by co-creator Brian Bolland. Bruce Patterson is credited as embellisher, although in an interview in back issue 27, Bolland is quoted as saying, I penciled really thoroughly so that the inker wouldn't have any chance of having his own style. Mike W. Barr also quotes Bruce Patterson, talking about how much detail there was in Bolland's pencils. And let me say at the outset, Out of respect for Mark, Martin, Andy, my other friends and acquaintances in the UK, I will not, repeat not, attempt British accents during this synopsis. You're welcome. We start in the year 3000 as green reptilian aliens invade London. The stinking aliens aren't taking prisoners, I hear, one man says. They're just killing us wholesale. Tom Prentice flees the country to France with his family in a modern sci-fi flying car, driving from the right side of the vehicle, I'll point out, because some things never change. The aliens blast the vehicle, sending Tom out of it. Does not look like his family made it. He runs and runs until he reaches Glastonbury Tor for eons, a region thick, swathed in magic and mystery. Yet the people of the year 3000 don't believe much in magic, and the only mystery in Tom's mind is whether he'll survive the night. The Tor is an active dig site, and as a junior member, Tom gets inside the dig HQ. But aliens have found him, and they blast their way in. Lost in the tunnels, Tom runs into a huge rock blocking his path. A rock with an inscription. Here lies buried the renowned King Arthur, once and future king. It's just Tom's luck to find something historically valuable right now when he's running for his life. He gets at it with a probar, but instead of moving it out of its way, he just pries off the lid. How, how long, comes a voice 
from inside the crypt. And then we get a full paid splash of King Arthur. How many knights has slept Arthur Pendragon, King of Britain, Lord of the Roman Empire? And since this is 1992, this is only page 9 as opposed to this scene being the final page of issue one, or maybe even issue two, were this to be published today. Now, Arthur does not let his confusion as to the current location in space and time, where and when he is, does not let that keep him from dispatching an alien with Tom's technological tools before nabbing the alien's blaster weapon. I am sore tempted to keep this weapon, and why not? Its owner has no further use for it. Arthur taps Tom to be his squire in this strange era, but he needs to get to France and to safety. The duo make it to an alien ship, and Arthur is pretty excited that it can fly, although Tom is not so sure that he can make it fly. And Arthur provides the destination. Why to Stonehenge, lad, to find Merlin. While all this stuff is going on in Paris, businessman Jules Futrell is taking in as many refugees as he can from England, but wishes he could do more. Their weapons make ours look like toys. I am the richest man in the world. And I'm useless. Somewhere. There must be someone who can help us. But who? And how? And in North America, Commander Acton watches their last warship be knocked out of the sky by the aliens. She submits to her CO that, unless we find a way to defeat those aliens soon, the planet Earth will be in chains. As the king and his squire fly the alien ship, they discuss the legend of Arthur returning to England at the time of her greatest need. There's barely enough food or water to go around, Tom explains, and not nearly enough hope. We learned that nearly every country in the world, over 600 at the time, voted to end space exploration. So when we finally discovered these aliens were coming, we couldn't deal with it. They arrive at Stonehenge, and for Tom, the name, like the place itself, seems archaic. Out of place in the year 3000. Arthur wonders how Stonehenge still stands in the year 3000. And Tom relates a story of workers being unable to knock the place down, machines stopping, workers becoming ill. And Arthur laughs at this, knowing the cause, and then bellows out, calling to Merlin. He has to battle through a demonic being of some kind, but eventually he is answered. You have been heard, Arthur, son of Uther, and answered by Merlin. Son of the devil. We learn that Merlin arranged for Tom to find Arthur and tells them that they must be about his mission. You must again unite bickering nations under your rule, Arthur, as you did before. Unite them against a common foe. 
they head to a nearby nuclear plant, which is probably how they turn back the effects of global warming. It was into these waters that Excalibur was cast by one of his knights, and from here, it arises from the waters held by a feminine arm. But the sword disappears in midair, confounding all, except Merlin, who, as Arthur points out, is often rude but also correct. And on the last page, we head to the UN, where the nations have voted 912 to 0 to censure the invading aliens. And like nearly every other UN resolution, it doesn't seem to be worth the whatever it was written on or transmitted on or whatever. And then, in the words of a news correspondent, there is some kind of disturbance on the assembly floor. The whole place is shaking, as if in an earthquake. A huge slab of rock is thrusting its way up through the council floor. I don't know what... My God! Next issue. The Sword and the Stone. Which brings us to... Issue 2. The cover of which is again by Brian Bolland, and which doesn't really work for me. Certainly doesn't work for me as well as the cover of issue one. We have a tall, big brute of a being holding a couple people over his head, and Arthur's approaching, sword drawn. I don't know if it's the colors, the layout, the fact that Tom and Merlin are squeezed into the bottom left of the corner, but this one just doesn't work for me. The story, Chapter 2, Many Are Called, shares the same credits of Barr, Bolland, and Patterson. The opening page includes the notation, Continuing Legends Chronicled by Sir Thomas Mallory. We start exactly where Issue 1 left off, the same broadcast reporter on the floor of the General Assembly. He directs his ultra-modern year 3000 drone camera, to the inscription on the sword. Whoso pulleth out this sword of this stone is rightwise king-born of all Britain. Something stirs in people around the globe, something daring them to hope, something only half-learned and long-forgotten. Outside the building, a crowd is gathered, pushed to the breaking point, until arriving on the scene to break up the action are the Neo-Men, criminals, dissidents, bloggers, podcasters, undesirables genetically changed to loyal, virtually brainless servants of the powers that be. The big brute on the cover, he was a Neo-Man. Now before they can make too much progress battling the public, King Arthur Pendragon arise. I'll not stand by and see an innocent harmed, not while I live by Jesu. The broadcaster arrives outside, sending images of Arthur defeating the Neo-Man across the globe. And in people all over the world, something awakens. And neither Arthur nor Merlin understand the value of global broadcast, as Merlin 
turns the man's microphone into a snake. Back inside the UN, workers with high-tech year 3000 lasery equipment fail to remove the sword from the stone. But Arthur offers his services. My name is Arthur Pendragon, and that sword is mine. The first time, eons ago, he was a child, and as amazed as the rest that only he could take the sword, now he is king, and he knows the value of appearance. He wants to shout, to exclaim, for he is whole again. And from Excalibur, Seven stars shoot out, flying to various spots around the world. They are nearly intercepted by a mysterious being, but Merlin's power sends them forward onto their intended destinations. At the HQ of the United Earth Defense in North America, the blonde woman we met last issue gets zapped by the power of one of those stars. And Commander Joan Acton remembers, imperfectly remembers, images she knows she has never seen. Images whose full meaning elude her. They're important, she knows. If only she could remember. Three men in UED uniforms, two of whom have awesome beards, appear outside her quarters. Merlin gets them by the guards, and dropping the glamour of their disguises, he and Arthur and Tom enter the room. Arthur recognizes her immediately. Well, her reincarnated soul, that he recognizes. And it takes a passionate kiss, which it must be said here in 2022, occurs without her affirmative consent. But with the kiss, Commander Acton remembers. Arthur, my king. Guinevere, my queen. Our trio, now a quartet, follows the track of another star to Paris, where the other person we met last issue, Jules Futrell, the richest man in the world, is inhabited by the reincarnated soul of Sir Lancelot. And we get the sense that he and Merlin have a strained relationship. And on the last panel of that penultimate page, we see an image of Arthur's face in a crystal ball. And here, the triangle still exists then. How pitiful for them. And then we turn to the last page and get a glorious splash of, to be honest a scantily clad, magic-y type lady. Arthur's uncertainty destroyed the first Camelot. And if I know my half-brother, the second shall fall the same way. But if Morgan Le Fay can give it a push, so much the better. To be continued. And this is actually why I chose to cover the first two issues of this title and not just the, the first issue. Because it takes both issues to really and fully set the table for Camelot 3000, to assemble the cast and all that. So at this point, we have gathered Arthur, Merlin, Guinevere, Lancelot, and Morgan Le Fay. So after this, 
the series is off and running. Also, I will note that I wrote this synopsis and began recording this episode on the day of Queen Elizabeth II's passing, making a comic book about the future ruler of Britain strangely appropriate? Now, in terms of these issues, I will note that I am reading from my physical copies, and that is an important note because I saw listed somewhere online that Camelot 3000 was the first comic book series printed on Baxter paper instead of newsprint. And I actually want to start there because 40 years later, the paper is in good shape. The books themselves as objects hold together. They hang together well as artifacts. And the colors pop, no fading. And whether you like this last bit or not, you consider this a positive or a negative, there is no old comic smell. Because the paper has deteriorated very, very little. I am an Anglophile. I love England and many things English. Scones, football, the tube, the Brontes, Jane Austen, Thomas Hardy, Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, N.T. Wright, Harry Potter, Sherlock Holmes, and King Arthur. My favorite take on the Arthurian legend is the Pendragon Cycle, a series of novels by Stephen Lawhead. These five books, Taliesin, Merlin, Arthur, Grail, and Pendragon, put a focus on the religious, the Christian elements of the legend. But I'm a sucker for most takes on these stories, including Marion Zimmer Bradley's The Mists of Avalon, which tell the tale from the POVs of the female characters. There is just so much here, so much depth, in the stories, the characters, the relationships. It is just so ripe for novels, movies, TV, music. Did I mention that I love Rick Wakeman's album, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table? Because I do love it. And of course, comic book adaptations. And this, Camelot 3000, is clearly one of the best. There were a few bits of world-building here that struck me that I wanted to make sure I mentioned, and those are hints of the thousand-year history of the world that we're skipping over in these issues, references to what may have been occurring on the Earth during the interceding millennium. In issue one, when Tom is filling in Arthur as to the state of the world, he mentions that, quote, centuries ago, every country in the world voted to end space exploration. The visual that accompanies that is a UN vote of 612 against space science and three for space science, which is an interesting choice of words, actually. But that detail of the numbers. 612 to 3 as the vote. I can't say if that's Barr or Boland who came up with that, but I love it. It's basically a throwaway bit. It's about one-eighth of a page 
But to me, it tells a story. And we do have to say that because this story takes place on Earth in the future. This is as much a sci-fi story as it is a hashtag fantasy comics month issue. And this vote against space exploration or against space science, as the visual says, is a cool sci-fi story element. But my interest in particular is in those numbers. There are currently, as I record this, approximately 200 nations in the world. And I find it fascinating that that number had grown to 600 by the time of that space or no space vote. We don't know when that was other than that sometime between 1982 and centuries before the year 3000, I don't know, say the year 2500, there were 600 nations. And then later in issue one, we get the number of nations in the year 3000. And this is in the script. A resolution condemning the aliens passes 912 to zero. So we went from 200 countries in 1982 to just over 600 somewhere between then and 3,000, say the year 2,500, and then over 900 in the year 3,000. And that is a neat bit of world building, the kind of thing that you see in future Earth sci-fi. And the best of those stories, and I'm including this one, just throws this stuff out there without even a comment certainly without an explanation, maybe for no one even to notice. But let's think about this for a moment. How do you go from 200 countries to 900? How do the number of countries on a planet expand? There are some obvious ways. War, civil war, secession, other ways that nations fall apart. And it's interesting that this was written in 1982, because since then, in our real world, in the last 40 years, we have actually seen an increase in the number of nations. The USSR used to be one, and now it's, what, about 15? Although current events, as I record this, makes it clear that Russia would like to reabsorb a few of those nations. Yugoslavia was once a nation, and now it's something like five different countries. The most peaceful breakup in recent history was a nation that I used to know as Czechoslovakia, which very calmly and rationally split into the Czech Republic and Slovakia. So there has been a trend in this direction, but I need to emphasize that none of that was happening when this issue came out. That, these breakups of these Central and Eastern European countries, was a good decade away from when this comic came out. Then there is that old joke about why you should invest in real estate because God isn't making any new land. Over the course of a millennia, I suppose there could be some new land created. We have seen 
man-made islands being built, that sort of thing. I also suppose that sea level change could make new islands. Sea levels going either direction actually could do that. So there are other ways to increase the number of nations on a world, but I don't know how you get to 900 without, well, without really troubling situations, which just add to my headcanon of how this world came to be, how this version of the year 3000 came to be. And I love that we don't know the particulars, that this really is more than likely, almost certainly, a throwaway bit. Maybe Barr didn't even think about it. But the cool thing is, it gave me something to think about. Again, those specific thoughts that I've just rambled on about, there's no way that those were intended by Barr and Bolland. And I hope that I wasn't implying that that was their intention. Because that doesn't matter to me. It's just indicative of the depth of a story that a reader can find something that cool to send a mind off in a direction like that. And it doesn't have to be to every reader, of course. And to me, that's exactly what the myth of authorial intent represents. It's not just that I don't know what Barr and Bolland intended, giving us the number of nations. I actually don't care what they meant. I don't care if it meant to mean anything at all. Whether the time I spent thinking and talking about it far exceeds the amount they spent thinking about it does not make any difference whatsoever to me. What an artist intends with their art is immaterial to me in this context. What matters is the effect it has on the consumer of the art, in in this case, me. Those little bits almost certainly were not intended to be thought-provoking. I don't believe they were Easter eggs, but it doesn't matter because, as you just heard, They provoked a lot of thought in me. Let's be honest. They provoked a lot of overthinking in me. And what this says to me is that there are almost certainly, there have to be other details in these issues and in these series, in the text and the art that might not send me, but will send you or others in cool, weird, interesting thought directions. I take that as a sign of the depth of the work, how deep you can think about this if and when and how you choose to. That's a strength of it. You don't have to choose to think about any of this atmospheric stuff, how we got from 200 to 600 to 900 nations in the course of a millennia. But you can. And I think... That the reason that I thought about that, why that caught my attention, or at least why I wanted to spend, what, five, six, seven minutes talking about it here, because in a critical sense, in terms of commenting about these issues, there's not much negative that I have to say. Okay, the cover of issue two was a little bland, but I struggled to come up with a more significant 
negative than that. The world, the characters, the situation, the idea, the concept, the execution, both in scripting and art, all cylinders. This is hitting on all cylinders. I read this long ago, back when it was fresh, and I really liked it back then. And, I mean, let's just get to the verdict. The verdict on Camelot 3000, issues one and two. I really enjoyed this read. The nostalgia paid off. The high reputation that this work still enjoys, sometimes that can set an expectation too high. But these issues met and exceeded those expectations completely, living up to the reputation. I really try not to gush, but these are complete, total quarter bin steals. And that wraps up our coverage of Camelot 3000, issues 1 and 2, bringing episode 186 to a close. Next month, here's the thing. There's not going to be a quarter bin episode next month in October 2022. As of this recording, my father passed away a few weeks ago. And in addition to the strain and emotion and grief and the actual paperwork and legal stuff, I am the executor of the estate. That's just going to become a lot. And between that and work, classes here in the heart of the semester, I just don't see me getting to an October hashtag horror comics month episode of the quarter bin. And it's easier to just pass on it at this point and announce that an episode won't happen than to say what I plan for the next episode and not be able to deliver. So let me just say that our next episode will come in November. Fear not. I do expect to read plenty of October-themed Halloween seasonal books. And those that I read, I will talk about on the Comics Reading Journal. So you won't totally miss me talking about hashtag horror comics month. It's just that I won't be speaking about them on a episode of The Quarter Bin. So, for November, for hashtag War Comics Month, we'll be looking at Guns of the Dragon, number one, from DC Comics, cover dated October 1998. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, Fantasy Comics, Futuristic Geopolitics, or anything, Arthurian, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The quarter bin podcast is part of the relatively geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age 
and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.